RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, we're streaming here on Instagram Live. Uh, you can catch us on all the podcast platforms. Uh, the show will be up on YouTube a little bit later today. So uh, you can see what it looks like up close and personal. And uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Check us out on all of our social media. We do a lot on social media. And as I had been mentioning for a while, we were going to get started on TikTok, and we have been. So uh, take a look there and uh, you know, tell me what you think. Uh, always interested in what you all, uh, whether it be from the podcast, from the YouTube replay of the podcast, to those of you on Instagram and social media, really always interested to know what you like, what you don't like, what you maybe want to see more of. Okay. Uh, apparently me on a scooter and Instagram and TikTok plays out really well. Um, so seemingly people really like that. So, um, let me know what you like, what you don't like, uh, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. That's the email address for this show. 855-LAWFATHER. You can text me or call me. All right. doesn't necessarily have to be because you have a case. It could be a legal question. It could be just a comment about the show or anything else. So please, by all means, reach out on any one of those platforms. And, you know, one of the things that I want to look into today and kind of dive in, and and this might become a a two-part show, part one being today and uh, possibly part two being next week. We'll see how the week plays out. Uh, But I think unless you have lived under a rock for the last year or so, uh, you know about two things, okay? COVID and the George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin trial, okay? Um, Just, I, I don't think I need to say much more about it in terms of what happened, how it happened, or anything else, because I think, uh, as I said, unless you lived under a rock, you're pretty well familiar with that uh, there was an incident where there was Derek Chauvin, who was a Minnesota police officer, and George Floyd, who was being arrested, and uh, ultimately, it ended in the death of George Floyd, okay? Um, So, not going to get into the semantics too much, and, you know, as we get started on this, one thing that I, I do want to mention, and those of you who listen know, I spent six years in law enforcement, right? So I have a lot of experience from that side of things, um, but I can tell you I've never watched this video, uh, and not that this video is unique. I don't ever watch any of the videos when it has to do with uh, there being a death or um, someone being killed, whether it's by police or anything else. All right, uh, you know, that's just me, right? I, I know a lot of people watch it. I know it's a, I, you know, I know it's something that that people want to see, and maybe it has to do with my time in law enforcement and just dealing with um, the mental difficulties that spending a, a long time in law enforcement is. But I just don't watch the videos, okay? And it, it has nothing to do with anything. Then that's just how I get through life and having spent six years in law enforcement. Okay. Um, but what I do read up on and what I do take a look at is the legal side of things. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to talk about the trial, right? And one of the things that I I bring up whenever we talk about these sensitive topics, right? Because it's a sensitive topic. It's one that has created a, a big 
we'll call it racial tension, I guess, is maybe the appropriate word for it. Um, but it sparked a lot of protests in this country, and that's fine. But when we're looking at things from the legal side, we have to put race to the side, right? I, I've said this before, right? You look at the the justice, right? The, the scales of justice and lady justice. And what does lady justice have over her eyes? A blindfold. Why? Because justice is blind, right? Justice is blind to race, to sex, to to culture, to any of those factors, right? Any of those demographic type factors. What do we care about in the law, right? Well, we care about getting it right or getting it right in the best version possible, okay? But we care about the facts. We care about what we know and what we can prove, all right? And and keep in mind, sometimes what we know and what we can prove are two different things. And that's something we've talked about in the past is that there is a, a difference and I know something happened versus I can prove something happened. And, and it's a nuanced difference, but it exists. Okay. So as we look to this, right? Look, Derek Chauvin is entitled to a fair trial. Derek Chauvin is, is innocent until proven guilty. Okay. That is the tenant of the criminal justice system. Innocent until proven guilty. I don't know how in the heck this guy has a fair trial, right? I I just don't. I don't know how that's possible, right? And look, I I don't know if there is a plea deal that was put out there, but, you know, I I don't know how you don't take a plea deal if you're him, if it's anything that's reasonable. My guess is that there was nothing in terms of a reasonable plea deal, right? And, And what I mean by reasonable, where it's, do you have a better chance, right? Or, or is the sentence lesser by taking a plea deal versus seeing it through trial? Okay, um, that that's just the reality, and I think that's 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 a thing here in this one. My guess is that there was no plea deal that made it a better option to accept that versus going to trial. And, and that's the analysis on those things, right? I mean, heck, if if your plea deal. Is and, and this is a hypothetical, this is not, because I don't know if there was a plea deal. Um, but if your plea deal is 10 years in prison and your maximum sentence is 15 years, let's say, uh, in prison, if you go to trial, uh, you know, if it's me, I'm probably going to trial, right? Because if I got to do 10 anyway, what's another five? So um, that, that's just kind of the analysis on it as we look there. But, uh, you know, I don't know how you have a fair trial because it, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And this is where, you know, Jason and I were talking about jury selection uh, prior to the show today. And jury selection is really interesting. And as we were talking about jury selection, it kind of hit me, right? With with the the way this has played out in, in the court of public opinion, and with the way things have become, the tensions that have existed, I can't imagine being a juror. Now, now let me take a step back. What, how jurors find in a particular case is confidential, right? Now, can we ask as attorneys to pull the jury? Yes, we can. Okay. Does that mean they have to supply a response whether they were guilty or not guilty? Right? Yes, they do. Um, you know, 
is it possible for us to get more feedback? It is. There is a, a mechanism for that. It's it's rarely used and it isn't always granted when asked. Okay. But what is the chances? And I'm just throwing this out here, right? As we're talking about can Chauvin receive a fair trial is this. If a juror finds him not guilty, is that juror labeled a racist? Because I think that's going to be the end result, right? And, and if that is, how do you have a fair trial? Okay. Now, look, I'm going to come right out with, you know, and, and I'm going to explain the elements of these charges, right? I'm going to explain what Chauvin has been charged with. I don't know how he wins. Okay. I don't, I, I just don't. Right. Um, there's the, the way the charges are structured. He's got a really, really difficult case to win. Okay. Uh, and I think it, it may become a, how do we mitigate? How do we lessen the impact, right? How, how do we lessen the prison sentence, if you will? And I think that's going to be the, the final result, but my, my goal for possibly turning this into a two-part piece is, number one, today, looking at it from the state's perspective, the state put on their case, right? And then the defense perspective, which I believe the defense is starting up this week sometime, okay? Uh, and so that's how cases go. Here's the structure of a case. You have the opening. Both sides give an opening. I'll take a step back. You have Wadir, which is the jury selection. That happens first. Then you have opening statements. State goes first. Defense goes second. The defense can actually hold their opening till when they present their case. Okay, that's an option. But I believe in this case, both gave their openings right in the beginning. And then the state presents their case, and what does that mean? They put on witnesses. Right? Uh, you see, in Law and Order back in the day, when Law and Order was half the show was the law enforcement side, and half of it was the court side. Right? You would have, uh, yeah, they they bring witnesses on and they would uh, do direct examination, right? Where you can't ask leading questions. And basically the idea is if you're the one presenting your case, if you're the one doing direct examination, you are letting your witnesses tell the story. Okay. And then on the flip side is cross-examination. So when the state's putting on their case, the defense is doing cross-examination. And in that, that's where the attorney wants to be the one telling the story. You want to, to have, the person, your witness, answering as short as possible, right? You essentially want to pull them into yes or no answers. That's the goal, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of lot of cool pieces that come into trial work. And, and you know, I do trial work uh, due to COVID. It's been a while and uh, it's probably going to be even longer, but trial work's fun. There's a lot of little nuances. There's a lot of little head games that you can play, all right? But that's kind of the basics, of it. So state puts on their case. So they present their evidence. They bring their witnesses. They do direct examination. The defense does cross-examination. Then it flips. They, the state goes state rests. Then the defense will likely move for a judgment of acquittal, uh, which will most likely be denied. And the state will most likely put on, or excuse me, the defense will most likely put on their case. Now, the caveat to that is that if the defense doesn't feel that the state's put on their case, they can go right away, hey, the defense rests, right? Because the state has to prove the case, right? The state has to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, the person committed these crimes. 
So that's how it works. Uh, but let's look at the charges. All right. The charges against Chauvin are second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder and third degree manslaughter. Now, I'm going to break down what those actually mean. And normally I look at everything from a Florida point of view, because normally I'm taking a deep dive look and doing analysis on it. Uh, not going to do any analysis, but I'm going to explain to you the the elements of these for Minnesota. Okay, because that's where this case is happening, and I, I think it's extremely relevant and much better to do it under the Minnesota standards. So, second degree murder is causing the death of a human being without intent to affect the death of any person while intentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm upon the victim when the perpetrator when the purpose per, wow hey how about when the perpetrator is restrained under an order for protection and the victim is a person designated to receive protection under the order all right um, and, and that last part wouldn't apply necessarily to this because there was not any kind of restraining order uh, in this particular case uh, but i do think that the part that applies is um, the unintentional, um, the unintentional death while intentionally inflicting or attempting to inflict bodily harm, right? And, and that's going to be a part that's going to have to be looked at. Can they can they prove that Chauvin was truly intending to inflict bodily harm? And I don't, you know, I don't know, right? How do you prove that? Now, the placement of the knee could be right. But if it's that, hey, the knee was just in the wrong spot, you know, yeah, maybe, okay? I think that plays out a whole lot better in a scenario that's really quick moving, right? That, you know, kind of, for lack of a better term, your bang-bang scenario where things are moving fast, right? And uh, things happen, right? And, and as I mentioned, six years in law enforcement, you're fighting somebody and things are happening real time. It's not like hitting a heavy bag or a dummy, Right? Those don't move. Real people move. So sometimes things happen, right? Some, sometimes you you get into an area that you didn't mean to get into, right? But things are happening quick and you make an adjustment, right? There was a lot of minutes that happened. So to not realize where you were, I think is going to be a difficult defense, right? And I that's where you would have to, I think, go to, to say that you weren't intentionally intending to inflict harm, right? Next is third-degree murder uh, in Minnesota. It involves killing another person without premeditation and intent through inherently dangerous acts and with no regard for human life. <sighs> Honestly, that's probably going to be the hardest to prove, okay? Um, and, and look, you can you can take any of these things, and, and it's all about perspective, and it's all about really getting an understanding and getting into a thought process, right? You almost have to get into that person's head. What were they thinking, right? And that's going to be very difficult to tell um, because from all intents and purposes, it sounds like these were two strangers, even though I know from reading that Chauvin worked, uh, I believe, an off-duty job at the same club that Floyd worked at, and but apparently there was never any interaction, which I find really interesting, although it could be true. Uh, back when, uh, I believe it was called The Venue, okay, uh, Back in uh, St. Pete off of Olmerton Road, we had an off-duty job there. It was awesome. Actually, it just opened. It was it was really cool. <laughs> um, and I was in my early 20s at the time, so it was even cooler. Um, but we were just posted up outside. 
the only person that I actually ever had any, any interaction with. And it's somebody that I, I still kind of bump into every once in a while. He was the head of security there. Um, good guy, by the way. I really like him. But anyway, uh, I knew nobody else, right? So even though I did a lot of off-duty jobs there, I couldn't have told you one bouncer or one security person's name. I, I couldn't even point him out to you if I walked past him. Okay, the only person I could tell you was the guy who ran the security. And it was because I talked to him a decent amount while I was there. <laughs> so, um, you know, that said, I could, I could see that, right? And, and my initial thought when I, when I heard, these, heard that they had worked in the same place, my initial thing was, hey, no chance they didn't know each other. But, you know, right here as we're talking about it, I'm realizing, hey, I, I did something very similar in terms of an off-duty job. And I didn't know anybody other than the one person, right? So that's entirely possible, okay? Um, but what we have to, to dive into is what was his intent? Was his intent to, to actually kill Floyd? Was his intent to actually create a dangerous act that had no regard for human life? I don't know. I think that's going to be tough, right? Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of instances that that's a lot easier to show. Um, then we have lastly, second degree manslaughter, and it's by the person's culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know how Chauvin gets past that one. I just don't. Okay. I think second degree manslaughter in a case like this is going to be very, very easy for the state to prove. Okay. Um, you know, on some levels, I, I think you, you have essentially throwaway charges where you go, these are my top goals, right? As a, as a prosecutor, you go, if I can get this, this is great, but I have my fallback that I know I can prove every single day of the week and there is no chance I lose. Okay. Now there's always a chance, right? On either side, there's always a chance you lose, right? There is no guarantees, especially when you're talking about juries right? There are a lot of times that I'm explaining to clients, hey, look, I could take your case, put it in front of five different juries and get five different responses. It's absolutely true. Okay. But I can't think of a way that that Chauvin could get around the second degree manslaughter charge. I really don't because the, you have the amount of time, you have the location of the knee, right? You, and you start building this. It was unreasonable. Okay. Due to the amount of time, it was unreasonable. And due to the amount of time, you consciously did it, right? Here's the difference. Okay. Someone swings at you. You swing back, right? Because you're protecting yourself, right? And, and, and we'll get into a little bit, right? And I did a lot of hand-to-hand -hand training, a lot of it. Um, mostly because, in my point of view, given the option in a situation... I would rather fight somebody hand-to-hand -hand than pull my gun and end up in a deadly force situation, right? To me, I, I would have rather fought hand-to-hand -hand and had everybody live to see another day than to immediately go to, hey, we're going to go to deadly force. That was just me, right? May have violated some policies in, in that thought process, okay? Um, never really, it never really came up because, hey, you know, when it happened, it, it was easily justifiable that I didn't go beyond the force that I was using, okay? Um, 
and and in that look things happen right so one of the things that that is a common technique in boxing for example is if someone swings at you you kind of kind of come back right you you bring your head back and your next move is your right hand right to the face okay well look people move things happen right maybe you you hit them in a spot that you didn't mean to right that wasn't your intended target but the person moved okay that that's not consciously ch- taking a chance of causing death or great bodily harm because it's bang bang it's happening in the moment it's happening in fractions of a second and that's where chauvin's case in my opinion from the legal side falls apart because you had this extended period of time and i believe you know, all along, I believe it was eight seconds in, or eight minutes, excuse me, eight minutes and change. Uh, and then I, as I was looking into some of the stuff for the show today, I, I saw nine minutes and change. So somewhere between eight and nine minutes. And, and look, the difference between eight and nine minutes in this case is immaterial. Okay. I, I don't, I really don't think, um, you know, there, there's a difference in whether or not the unre- unreasonable risk existed if it was eight minutes or if it was nine minutes. Okay. So I, I just think the state's going to have a really, really good chance of proving a second degree manslaughter. And, and what that would be, it would be called a lesser included charge. All right. That's, so you have your, your upper level charge or highest level, right? Your unintentional murder charge, I believe it was. And then uh, the other charges become your, uh, your lesser and included charges. So that is, that is, you know, that part of it. Now let's take a look at why conviction may be difficult, right? And, and, you know, this is, here's the thing. There's a lot of, uh, maybe, maybe not a lot, maybe, maybe, uh, as we would say in a deposition, when you ask a question, that's really poor, uh, strike that, um, or, or you say something that you really didn't mean it the way it came out, uh, strike that, uh, if you will. Um, and basically what that is, is the court reporters, you know, just taking that out of the transcript and you're moving on to the next thing. But anyway, um, what may make a con a conviction difficult in this case, the autopsy might, right. And, and the toxicology report ha- has a real potential to cause problems for the state. Uh, you know, the, how did he die? Right. Court of public opinion knows that Chauvin hundred percent caused his death. But he had fentanyl in his system. Chicken and the egg, cart before the horse, right? I don't know. Which happened first? What was the true cause? Uh, and I believe fentanyl uh, can lead to asphyxiation, which is the same thing that kneeling on somebody's neck causes. Did they work together? Would it have been if, if Floyd didn't have fentanyl in his system and the facts remain the same? right? Would he have not died? And I think that's an important question. It's an important question from the legal point of view, okay? It may not make Chauvin a better person, okay? It may not make Chauvin a better cop, but all the law cares about is what the law says, right? Lady Justice is blind. So I think that's a really very important part And I would expect you to see that when the defense puts their case on, that's going to be a major part of their case. Now, you know, one of the things that, that I saw in this is 
the prosecutors got in front of this drug use by Floyd. And you may say, why would they do that? Why would they come out and go, hey, this guy is a drug user, right? And because right, your initial thought process is, well, well, he's not the icon that I thought. He's a drug user, right? Well, well, look, and, and, and you know, it's a hypothetical, hypothetical thought process. And it's something that those of us who do trial work know that you're going to have bad facts. Uh, I, I can think of very few cases. I, I have actually two right now where I have no bad facts. <laughs> um, they're dreams. Those are absolute dream cases right? Um, they are probably once in a career type cases because every other case has at least one bad fact. And as you're getting ready for a trial, you have to determine what do I do with that bad fact, right? Because number one, am I going to be able to keep that bad fact out? Okay. Me as an attorney, is it going to be something that if the other side tries to introduce it, I can get the judge to suppress. And if I think there's a really good opportunity to, to, opportunity to suppress it, guess what? I'm ignoring it, right? Yeah, I know it exists. And I know I'm going to have a game plan for if a judge allows it. But I'm not going to be the one bringing it up. All right. But if I have a bad fact that I know is going to come out and there is... No way, shape, or form that I could ever see a judge suppressing any evidence indicating that Floyd had drugs in his system at the time, right? That he had fentanyl in his system at the time of his death. I can't imagine a judge suppressing that. However, I also can't imagine the public not knowing that because it's been in the news a, a lot, right? I mean, look, this is a Minnesota case that we're talking about here in Florida that I think pretty much everybody is pretty well up to speed on at least on a very high level. So if I'm the prosecutor, I'm getting in front of it. I'm getting right out, right out in opening statement. Yep. Hey, you know what? Yeah, George, George Floyd used drugs, but that didn't cause his death. Nope. A, a, a rogue bad police officer did. Okay. That's... That's a purview of what my opening statement would be as the state, because the purpose of my opening statement is to tell the story and both sides get to tell their story, right? You're not arguing the law in your opening statement. If you do, the judge will tell you to stop. And well, once that has to object, but the judge will tell you to stop and go, stop telling the law, just tell us the story, right? Paraphrasing. Um, but you know, and sometimes we, as lawyers, we try to push that envelope because we want to get things out there, right? But you're telling the story. So that's the story that the, the prosecutors are going to tell. They're, they're, that they're going to paint Chauvin as a bad actor, as a bad character, right? Bad moral values, maybe racist. I don't know, okay? But that's the picture they're going to paint. So the prosecutor's going to say, Derek Chauvin's this really bad guy. Yeah, we know. We know, okay, Floyd had fentanyl in his system. But hey, what we also know is this, we know that, that, and we're going to show you through testimony of his girlfriend, that he had an injury at some point in time and he started on opiates. So, uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone. And, and by start on, I mean, he was prescribed them for an injury, right? What's the common story we hear, right? And, and it is, it has become far too common in this country as an aside to this particular case. I don't know what the answer is, but 
the prescription use of oxycodone and hydrocodone, although it has legitimate medical uses, tends to lead to this, right? An addiction where, okay, you're going and getting more pills because um, your prescriptions run out. So now you're getting them uh, on the black market, if you will, and you're buying them illegally. Now your next step is, well, the pills aren't cutting it anymore, so I need more, right? I need something additional. And and look, this is an aside from Floyd. This is just this, this is explaining how we get to, you know, what we have kind of going on with with opiate drug use. Heroin is also an opiate, right? So back in the '80s, we saw the big heroin. It may have been '70s. Either way, it's before my time. Um, we saw, I think, New Jack City, right? Heroin use. Okay, um, heroin's an opiate. It's that next step up. Okay, and I think that's why we've seen a resurgence of heroin use. And beyond that, fentanyl use. Okay, uh, Michael Jackson, that's what he died of, uh, a fentanyl overdose. So it exposes a bigger problem in the country, I think, the, the opiate use. But it's something that a jury can wrap their head around, right? Because the prosecutor wants to make you feel bad for George Floyd, right? Not just because he died, but because how did we get there, right? How did we get, hey... He's the victim in this, not only because he's truly the victim in this, right? He's the victim because society failed him, right? Our medical system failed him because, you know, and, and this is this is the picture I'm painting if I am the prosecutor giving my opening statement, okay? He had this injury. He started with the opiate use. He started with a hydrocodone, oxycodone. It was prescribed, moved up the chain. Hey, he ended up using fentanyl, but he was trying. He was, he was trying to stop. Him and his girlfriend would try to stop, and they couldn't quite beat it. And it is unfortunately what led to his untimely death, right? Because it led to um, his interaction with Chauvin, right? And look, I'm I'm taking some artistic license, if you will, but that's a little bit how I would paint an opening statement on that, right? And I would paint Chauvin as the, hey, this guy's a bad guy, you know. Look, look at his history. I'd have his personnel history, right? Look at his complaints. These are all the complaints we have him. These are all the uses of force, right? These are all the times he's been in trouble. Right? And I don't know. I don't, I don't have access to that. But I'm assuming that there's some, right? Look, if you do the job long enough, if you do the job at all, you're going to have complaints. <laughs> it just is one of those things. It doesn't doesn't matter. You're, you're just, it's going to exist. It's going to happen. Somebody's not going to like something. Somebody's not going to like that you pulled them over for speeding, even though they were doing 165. How dare you? you? You singled me out as the one doing 165. Well, yeah, because you were doing 165, right? I mean, come on. Um, but that's just reality. So um, now if I'm on the defense side, I'm doing my opening and I'm painting Floyd as, hey, look, he went into a convenience store. He passed a counterfeit note. That's why Chauvin was there. Chauvin's not the problem. Floyd's the problem. And oh, by the way, fentanyl caused his death. Okay, and that's why the prosecutors have to get out in front of it, because I fully believe and I fully expect as the defense plans their case and starts putting their case on that they will be relying on the cause of death being from fentanyl use and not from Chauvin. All right. One of the key witnesses that I saw and I have kind of have a question on this um, because I didn't see anything that indicated that this Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman. Now, as I'm reading about it, he's been with the Minnesota Department uh, Police Department longer than anybody else on the force. Great. You're the longest tenured officer. Well, you're a lieutenant, so you, but you're the longest 
you're the longest tenured law enforcement officer that the Minnesota Police Department has to offer. Cool. Great. What section are you in? That's what I want to know, right? If I'm working on this case, my headline isn't, hey, this is Lieutenant Zimmerman, and he's the longest person on the Minnesota Police Department. No, it's, this is Lieutenant Zimmerman, and he is the lieutenant that oversees training. That's who I want, right? I want the person that's involved in the training, because what we also fully expect to hear from the defense is that that's how Chauvin was trained, right? Now, could this be a problem for the prosecutor? Because could this be their witness that they're using that, from what I read, didn't have bells and whistles screaming out that this guy was in the training section? Because does the defense have the person who runs training, right? To show that, hey, Chauvin was just doing as he was trained? Now, look, I, six years. I can't tell you I remember in six years. Now, it's been a while. Okay, I will give you that. I, I left in 2012, and it's 2021. I can't ever remember a time in training where they said kneel on somebody's neck. <laughs> I just don't. I Maybe I missed that day. Maybe I missed that day every year during in-service training. Maybe I missed that day in the academy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, if, I don't know. I, I just... I don't have an explanation for that. So I can't imagine you're going to find anybody in the training section that's going to say that's how they were trained. So I do find it interesting, right? Because the core of Lieutenant Zimmerman's testimony was that kneeling on a neck is deadly force and it's not within their training. I can get behind that, right? I absolutely can. I don't disagree with that statement. I don't know why it's coming from Lieutenant Zimmerman, who his only headline is he's the longest tenured officer at the Minnesota Police Department. I want it to come from training. If it's my case and I'm putting it on and I'm the attorney on it, I'm getting somebody from training because those are the people that are doing it every single day. Not the guy who once a year shows up at in-service. Like I've seen lieutenants at in-service. It's kind of a joke, right? Because they're not out there necessarily doing all the all the stuff. And really, it kind of creates an interesting dynamic because the guys running training usually aren't lieutenants. So you have this guy that you actually answer to, right? Who can actually give you orders and you're, you're training them, right? Which I, there's not really a better way to do it, right? But do you really think that, that the lieutenant has to put in the same effort as the deputy, right? Deputies being the lowest level, lieutenants being a couple couple rows up from that. So deputy, corporal, uh, sergeant, lieutenant. Okay, that, that's how that goes. Yeah, probably not, right? It's just that's not the reality. So so they're just working their way through their training. And, and look, once a year, kind of mail it in, rubber stamp, you know, fire your gun for, for the um, – for the training part or for the uh, standards for the state, get your qualification, move on with your day. All right. Um, so that's the guy that is testifying in this huge case that kneeling on a neck is deadly force, not within training. Dude, you could have called me. I could have given you the same information with about the same amount of, uh, of, of credibility behind it. Okay. So if it's me, I'm putting the training person on. I'm putting the person best suited to provide that information, which makes me wonder, does the defense have an ace up their sleeve with the training department? My guess is no, but 
be interesting if it did play out like that. So anyway, that's what we're looking at on the state process. Uh, there are there have been several witnesses. They have surveillance video that shows all of this. Uh, the witness testimony has been uh, pretty emotional. And, uh, you know, witnesses saying, hey, I wish I had done more. Uh, I should have done more. Uh, yeah, that's a tough thing, right? Because you see law enforcement doing something. Are you really going to jump in and, and, and put yourself essentially in harm's way? I, you know, I, I don't know, right? Look, I got a family and kids. I'm not jumping in any situation that doesn't involve my family and kids. That's, that's the sheer reality. Okay. Um, I, I, if I'm not here for them, doesn't, doesn't do any good. So I know what my reality is. Um, but that said, everybody else has their own reality and, and, you know, these people who witnessed it, they have to live with what they saw the rest of their life. I I understand that it's look, dealing with death and seeing, seeing death and, and major injuries, there's no easy way to do it. Okay. Um, which is, we come right back to how I started it. I don't watch these videos and it has to do with that. I don't watch any of these videos. So it's not just this one. It's every single one of them. But anyway, uh, that's kind of a a preview of the state's case. And uh, so they've shown a lot of evidence that he was kneeling on this guy's neck. Look, they have video. (laughs) Um, That's going to be the hardest thing is to overcome on the defense is that there's video of this thing. Eyewitness testimony is good. Video is great. Okay. The, the reality is eyewitness testimony does have a tendency to be unreliable. Okay. Uh, the FBI has done studies on that. Uh, I've seen it in real life. The stories don't get better as time go on, right? Eyewitness accounts don't get better as time goes on. Uh, the mind has the ability to kind of change things around on you. And it just, it's a really interesting thing. And it may be, maybe something interesting to dive into at, at a later date. Maybe we dive into eyewitness testimony and look at that. But anyway, uh, state's case seems rock solid based on the witnesses so far. And that is kind of the precursor. That is how I would handle, as I mentioned, the opening statement and uh, what I would have done maybe differently than putting uh, just a, a, the longest tenured officer uh, on the stand. Now, look, I don't know, maybe. And I went I kind of went off on a, a little aside about this Lieutenant Zimmerman. For all I know, he may have written all of the policies and procedures for the training section. He could be the training guru, okay? But I would have liked to see that played up a little bit more, okay? Because if I'm on the state side and I'm taking that person who is the guru for it and I'm combining that with all of these witness statements that explain what happened and how it happened and how nobody did anything and how Floyd wasn't wasn't fighting. He wasn't actively trying to get up. He wasn't actively trying to fight Chauvin and he wasn't actively trying to flee the scene. I combined those two things and I have a really, really rock solid case from the state perspective. Okay. So talked a lot about the state perspective and how that works and looks and feels, uh, would like to, depending on how the week goes in the trial, would like to revisit this next week, uh, on the defense side. I will probably wait until the defense rests because I want to be able to take a big block to go over and look through all of that. So if this trial pushes into next week, I will wait a week and put that all together, but I want it all in one, one fell swoop. Okay. So that is the Derek Chauvin, George Floyd show. Um, and, and kind of what's going on with the trial. Want to jump into a listener question, all right? And it's something that comes up a lot, and it's uh, something I use a lot in law enforcement, 
Okay, and tell you what, it's some of those is one of these things that always made me scratch my head, and I still kind of don't understand why people do this to this day. But the question is, if I get stopped and the cop asks if he can search, should I consent to this search? Short answer is no, you should not. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, but I don't have anything on me, so they don't have a right to. Okay, um, they, they have a right to ask. So, so let me let me take this a step back. Okay, let's look at a little bit of what can be done and what can't be done. All right, a consent search has to be done truly, freely, and voluntarily. So, a traffic stop. Play this out like this. You're on a traffic stop. You're not free to leave when the officers turn those lights on, stops you, comes up to the car, gets your license, gets all of your information, right? If you leave, well, you're going to end up with some other charges. So you're not truly free to leave, right? And so how this has to work is, hey, if they ask you for a consent to search and you're not truly free to leave, well, they don't have a valid consent right? They can't get a valid consent because they don't, they haven't crossed the threshold to be able to ask you. So in order to do it properly, and, and, and this is overkill because the Supreme Court says that you don't have to be told you're free to go. So that's the key, right? So you think about that. The officer doesn't have to tell you you're free to go, but they can go, hey, can I search your car? Right? And, and I'll tell you, this is how I did it. And look, I, it's something that I developed over time. I, <laughs> good, bad, or indifferent, I became really good at getting people to allow me to search their cars. I don't know, maybe I just have a really trusting face that, or they really truly thought I wasn't going to find the drugs that were in the center console. Because <laughs> um, by and large, um, the people who consented the search, there were drugs in the center console. Um, it's weird. I, I don't know. I don't know why people say yes when they know they have crack in a crack pipe in the center console. But be that as it may, that's uh, it's a really interesting mental piece to it. But I'd go back up to them. I'd ask them to get out of the car. The Supreme Court says that if an officer asks you to get out of the car, you have to get out. Okay. There is no way around that. It's, it's something that's allowed. So don't fight it. Okay. When that officer asks you to get out, okay, no problem. Boom. Okay. I would go, hey, here's your license. And if they got a ticket, hey, here's your ticket. Um, I'd have my lights turned off, right? So our, our light bars, you could turn on the front and the back, or you could just turn the back on, right? So I would just turn the back on so somebody didn't rear end my car from the back and, and create a, a, a hazardous situation. Turn the lights off, hand them their ID and go, you are free to go. Hey, man, you got anything on you're not supposed to have? No, I don't. Hey, you mind if I take a look? Sure. That was it. That was it. And guess what? That is completely legal. That is completely legal for the officer to do. Hey, how about this? The officer doesn't even have to say you're free to go, right? Your, your indicators of being free to go are those lights being off and being handed your stuff back. Now, I know plenty of officers who did plenty of consent searches that were deemed to be okay and kept their lights on. But I always wanted to be that next step, right? That next step to doing things a little bit better. And it's the same. I always want to do things a little bit better. How do we do things a little bit better? Well, we're going to take every, every precaution possible, right? That officer hands you your stuff back. You're now free to go. Okay. That's it. Traffic stops over. Hey, officer, I'll see you later. Okay. So the officer says, hey, can I, can I search your car? Answer is, no, sure, you can't. They can't search you. 
And if they do, guess what? That search can be thrown out. I, I'll tell you like this. I had a, uh, a criminal case. This is going on a lot of years now ago, um, maybe about six years ago. Guy was, guy was walking in Tampa. Uh, Tampa police stopped him, and he had, he had two backpacks, okay? And they, they, they stopped him and said, hey, can we search you? He says, no, you can't search me. Can we search the bags? He says, you can search this bag, but not that bag. Okay. That's actually, you could do that. I, I, I don't to this day understand why the guy just didn't say no, but the bag that my client said that TPD could not search, TPD searched. Okay. And they even testified to that in their deposition that they were told they could not search that bag and they searched it anyway. Well, guess what? The drugs were in that bag and they arrested the guy. Guy comes to my, not my current firm, but my, the firm that I started at. And I read through the police report. And I go, well, okay. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a valid search. I get the guy's story. Doesn't sound like a valid search, but let's see what the officers say, right? Because one of the things that was found in the bag was marijuana. And as we're talking about searches, anytime there is marijuana, well, okay, let me take a step back because the laws have changed on marijuana. And quite frankly, um, I haven't done a deep dive search on marijuana odors, right? Um, but prior to some of the legalization and the... Um, Oh, there's a word for it. I can't think of what it is, but but when it, it becomes a non-arrestable offense, even though it's still against the law, um, decriminalization, the decriminalization of marijuana, you could search anything you wanted if you smelled the odor of marijuana. So I had that police report, did the deposition. I wanted to see if they said, oh, well, I smelled marijuana somewhere, right? You don't have to pinpoint it because it, it just, it's an odor. It doesn't pinpoint very well. Um, but they didn't. They go, yeah, no. Um, we asked him if, if we could search it. He said no, but we said we're going to search it anyway. Yeah, guess what? The judge uh, threw out that search, and that person went home, okay? Um, charges were dropped because of that. So can you consent to, do you have to consent to a search? No. And what the Supreme Court has said, here's, here's how we tie this all back up into, into a nice, neat little package here. Uh, searches have to be reasonable, Okay. What makes a reasonable search? A warrant makes a reasonable search. Okay. All other searches are presumed to be unreasonable. And if a search is presumed to be unreasonable, law enforcement has to jump over a lot of hurdles to show why they did that search. Okay. You're consenting to a search can make a search. Okay. So long story short, you get stopped. That officer says, Hey, can I search your car? You say no. That's simple. Have a nice day, officer. That's it, right? Be nice, be polite, okay? And look, here's the reality. If that officer says, hey, I'm going to search it anyway, we're really in the time of, you know, uh, officer body cams and, and a lot of other things, okay? And if you're concerned that this is what's going to happen, record it, okay? Have a video. Just make sure the officer knows it's being recorded. Um, but anyway, it, just have some evidence for you. And don't fight the officer, okay? And we see this a lot, right? But he was wrong, but the officer was wrong. Okay, but don't become a, don't become a statistic because an officer is wrong, okay? 
call an attorney afterwards. Deal with it then, okay? By deal with it, I mean follow what the officer says, even if they're wrong, okay? Even if that means you take a ride to jail, I get it. It's not where anybody wants to be. Make your first call to a lawyer. Let them figure it out. Work on getting those charges back because, or getting those those charges walked back. Because if you end up with new charges, right? If you hit an officer, if you push an officer, yeah, you may get rid of those other charges, but that's not going to make those new charges go away. Okay? It's just not. Common law back in the day, back by back in the day, I mean like when we were in England back in the day, um, if law, if law enforcement was wrong and not law, I'm paraphrasing. Okay. And I may have the exact time period incorrect, but it's way, 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 way back um, before there were statutes. There was common law. If you knew an arrest was unlawful, you could fight. Okay. That's what common law said. We don't follow common law anymore for those type of things. It's all statutory. There's state statutes. There is not a state in this country that allows you to physically fight an officer if they are wrong, if it's a false arrest. Not one, okay? We can work on the original charge. That charge for you hitting an officer is not going away, unfortunately. Okay, just not. So don't do it. Do what they say. I know, right? It's difficult advice, but don't be a statistic. All right. But anyway, should you consent, say no. Right. That's it. It's that simple. And uh, just be polite when you do it. Things tend to go a lot better when when you're polite to people. My mom tells me that. Um, and it, it seems to be true. So uh, I think it holds true in this situation as well. But anyway, check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. And uh, that is the show for today right here from Lawfather headquarters. Lawfather out. I'm Jerry P. Tuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>